Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright, and this week, I'm the deleted scene. <laughs> Today we're talking about Minute 36, which begins with Steve paying off on his debt and ends with Natasha telling Bruce all about their toys. Joining us on the show today and all week, it's Jay Shepard, the MCU location scout himself. Hello, Jay. Hey, guys. Welcome. Uh, well, I guess welcome back to me. <laughs> welcome back <laughs> welcome. to you. <laughs> You're welcome. We welcome you. I'm so used to being the host. I apologize. Oh, <laughs> uh, We are thrilled to have you. It's going to be a fun week of uh, some good locations to discuss. And to that end, I just wanted to uh, ask first if there was a particular reason that uh, I'm guessing I can figure out why you picked certain locations that are later this week, but is there a particular reason you also wanted to discuss this particular minute? You know, they all flow together, I think, and, um, you know, this has just got some neat moments. I mean, I really enjoy this whole film. I think there's a lot of aspects of this that that work really well, and um, you know, just like the stuff we're starting off here with Steve (laughs) paying uh, Fury the money, you know, it's just just well-written. It's a good bit, but also, where is the helicarrier right now? Jay. Uh, it's it's <laughs> right above your house. I don't know if you know that. Whoa! <laughs> it's always yeah. above my house. Holy cow. Yeah, big Portland energy, the helicarrier, for sure. <laughs> well, actually, this particular one's probably in a junkyard, uh, post-Age uh, of Ultron. Right, 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 right. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, and I would think after the snap that a lot of these helicarriers just kind of fell into ruin anyway. Right. Fell out of the sky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they fell down. Yeah, okay, now that's an interesting scenario. Imagine... This group of people flying the helicarrier and half of them disappear. Could they land it? Is there enough people? There are a lot of people on here. The only guy left is like the Galaga Galaga guy, right? <laughs> exactly. like, that's it. Yeah. It's like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> uh, well, that's one thing Hydra did right with the Valkyrie. They had all those little drop ships that they yes, could take off with sure. in the back of it. Oh, man. Well... Anyway, this is a this is a fun minute for sure. Um, we are in the bridge of the helicarrier, and yes, as you already alluded to, we're starting off with the paying of this bet. This is jumping back to minute twenty three when Fury says to Steve at the boxing uh, at the boxing ring. At this point, I doubt. No, Steve says at this point, I doubt anything would surprise me. And Fury says, 10 bucks says you're wrong." And <laughs> here we are. Steve is surprised. Great moment. <laughs> and the fact that he has $10 of current money on him. Well, I, I mean, I guess it's yeah. not that surprised, but like, what does he do to get money at this point? I guess odd jobs, right? He sweeps a well, lot of yeah, floors. I, odd jobs, yeah. yeah he's, he's the shield janitor right now. <laughs> <laughs> he cleans up the gym after he just never yeah. gets tired, right? Yeah, right. I just I did some research. So ten dollars in nineteen forty five money. Um, just if he thinks about this sort of thing, like ten dollars is worth about one hundred twenty seven dollars and fifty five cents in two thousand twelve dollars. So it was a pretty steep bet for him. And I, I, you know, for Fury, it probably was not much. But for Steve, when he said ten bucks says you're wrong, he's probably like ten bucks. Jeez. Yeah, I would have said it with about a hundred bucks. So that's um, yeah. I could go buy a Buick for that. Are you kidding? It's <laughs> a down payment on a house. <laughs> One of the newfangled Stark cars. Right, exactly. Something else that I thought was funny about Steve is he pulls out his money from his pocket. It's just 
a wad of folded bills, no wallet, and the 10 is the outermost bill. Now, I mean, normally, like, when if you're doing that, I, I, I don't know. I always think of gangster movies when they just have a wad of money, usually in a roll in their pocket. But it's like the bigger bills on the outside. So it's like 10, the, the biggest bill that he's walking around with? Yeah, that's all he's got. Yeah, it's ones and fives, but then one ten. <laughs> it's one ten. Yeah. But like, this is sweet. like how granddad used to carry it, right? It was just cash, but there was there was a money clip. He had the money clip. I don't, I, I mean, do you guys, are you guys money clip guys? I have too many things. I'm a wallet guy. I'm actually a Captain America wallet guy. I've got a Captain America wallet. <laughs> Outstanding. On brand, always. Honestly, yeah. It's a leather wallet that I got on sale at like Macy's or something like that. Perfect. The disappointing thing about that that we just learned, though, is Captain America doesn't use wallets. So technically, there's no such thing as a real Captain America wallet. <laughs> okay. Well, but this has Jack Kirby art on the outside, so that's cool. Okay. Worth okay. it. Okay. Yeah, there worth you go. it. <laughs> now, here's another question. What do you think Nick uses money for, like, in his life? Like, does he do anything outside of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Like, can you see him, like, going to a movie? Well, his secret stashes, right? Because those are probably not S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, related. True. So he's got his own little secret. Right. He's got that container that um, he burns his uh, eyepiece in after Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. Right. And he probably had to pay for the funeral expenses uh, for his gravestone. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, don't, you don't think that was that's... a FEMA comp? I, I think probably somebody paid for that. <laughs> I was going to say, that's that's a terrible thing to have to uh, take into account if you're going to fake your own death is the fact that, well, somehow I have to actually pay for that, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's really sad. That's terrible. Well, but I mean, that's, that's all you got to do with your money. You know, maybe it's not that bad then. I just wonder, like, what does he do? Like, does he is he a drinker? Does he go sit down and just like, you know, <laughs> sit at the sit at the local bar or? You imply that Nick Fury's a big vice guy, like he's got a lot of vices. I just want to know what he does for fun. Like, where does he take vacation? Like, you know, one month out of the year, he's like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna head off to, I don't know, where does he go? Tahiti, Alpha Centauri. Where, where, yeah, right. Where does Nick Fury go for a break? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can only tell you about the way he takes his toast. I think. Um. <laughs> yeah, he's very particular about that for sure. That is so funny. I actually meant to, I don't think we ever see him in a situation with Toast through any of the films. Age of Ultron. He is eating it triangularly in Age of okay. Ultron, and uh, or whatever way he says he does not eat it. Okay, so, so, so that he has is... caused some consternation with... Uh... So something, well, <laughs> something changed over time. He finally realized after 95 or whatever that, you know, maybe triangular-shaped Toast is not so or, bad. Or that's a scroll in Age oh, of Ultron. Oh. At, mm. So it's at Barton's cabin, or Barton's house, um, when you see him eating there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nuts. Scrolls. now we have to think of scroll. Uh, I know. How many of them are in this film? That's like the least of your worries if you've watched yeah. uh, Quantum Mania. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, jeez. Let's not. We've got a while before we have to dig into that one. Yeah, right. Thank goodness. Oh, <laughs> Flashlight head. Flashlight head. All right. Uh, yeah. Can we talk about meeting Fury meeting the team or B- Banner? Banner and his eye contact problems? There is this meeting between Fury and Banner. This is the first time they've met, although Fury knows who he is. Presumably Banner doesn't know who 
uh, Nick Fury is. But this is the first time meeting. And it is interesting because of the way that, you know, he he comments, like, thanks for asking nicely. It also makes me wonder if if Ross ever just asked nicely, would Bruce have <laughs> said, well, OK. <laughs> I feel there's like a little bit of sarcasm in Bruce the in, this entire time anyway. Just, be, you know, given the fact that, you know, they sent Natasha to get him and yeah. all that. And again, the writing, like, the you know, there's this kind of constant sarcasm under a lot of the uh, elements of the dialogue, I think. Yeah, 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 for sure. It does. I mean, he does jump right into work right away. I mean, really, both of them do. You know, Banner kind of makes it clear that I, I'm not really looking forward to being here. And so Fury's like, well, you know, you can leave once we get the Tesseract. And so, like, that whole thing is they, they jump into it pretty quickly. And, you know, I guess they don't need uh, niceties. It's just like, yeah, let's just let's just figure this stuff out. It's it's interesting the way that that conversation goes. Um, and they both seem OK with it. And I do wonder uh, if it wasn't for everything else going on over the course of the film. If they got the Tesseract and they got to this point, if Fury would have just said, okay, well, see you later, you know? Mm. Yeah. What what I think is so interesting about this is that, well, there are a couple of things. The first is Banner, for all of his social, clear, like, social anxieties or, or you know, his his issues with being in the air and being with it and, and not being able to maintain eye contact and just being a, a generally shy guy. Also, as suspect as he is of every motivation coming from government, military, seems pretty easily swayed by, yeah, as soon as we have what we need, you're in the wind, man. Don't worry about it. Like, it, it seems like he's able to move on pretty quickly, which I always watch a little bit side-eyed. Like, I just am not sure that's a believable character thing. I know we have to move on. But right after this, we have this conversation about that that leads us you know, further towards S.H.I.E.L.D. becoming an authoritarian state. And nobody really thinks at all about the fact that S.H.I.E.L.D. is, is not just can they, uh, like, are they monitoring everything with an antenna and a camera and a, and a microphone, but they clearly have some facility at doing it. This isn't a new thing. They've, they're able to do it. They've been able to do it, is the implication. And I think it's fascinating. It go, It's like a blink and you missed it. Oh, my gosh. They're moving very, very close or clearly toward this sort of authoritarian um, state. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the part fascinating. that really always stands out to me at this point. Um, and I love I love Coulson's character. Um, uh, I did an entire podcast on every episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So, you know, we we followed that very closely. It's an interesting commentary, not knowing, you know, where they were going ahead with this, because I can't imagine that Whedon knew when he was writing this that, you know, they were going to be doing something with, like, the Winter Soldier, right, and the way that S.H.I.E.L.D. or HYDRA is within S.H.I.E.L.D. and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, it just kind of stands out. Like you said, it's this casual moment where it's like, oh, yep, we're just going to surveil everybody on the planet right now. You know, hang tight. (laughs) I just got to flip the switch on. And it happens. Like you said, it's not like, oh, we've got to get it warmed up. Or figure it out. Yeah, right. We we've just figured out how to do this magical thing with antenna, like like in in you know uh, the uh, Batman the uh, the last Batman movie, right? Like it's it's like they get it, they figure it out, but th- here they've known how to do it. That's the implication, and I think that's the scary that's the scary part. And it it does strike me that it feels like um, this sort of a tool 
with the gift of hindsight of just sort of the the general you know trajectory of politics this sort of of narrative tool is an easy thing to just throw into a a, a screenplay without really ever believing that we would ever get there because it's fantasy right it's just an easy shortcut to say this is a way that we can move from point a to point b quickly without having to get mired in investigation well but to to your point they do something very similar in the dark knight which was yeah uh, four years before this and so clearly it's it's something that you know people had been and, and yeah i'm recollections uh it was something that people had been concerned about with the advent of you know traffic cameras and everything else and so it's it's kind of, it's fantasy but it's like i i guess in a way it's it's sci-fi that it's like yeah this is kind of the future of where we're going to be with our science and technology and it's a common trope of anything that you want to make um the government untrustworthy or potentially untrustworthy with i mean goes all the way back to like three days of the condor though of course it wasn't like this high-tech digital stuff but you know i think you had enemy of the state and like 2009 with will smith as well you know all the same sort of things um the conversation with um with uh, Hackman. Lex Luthor. Um, Gene Hackman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lex Luthor, sure. <laughs> it were, both of them work. Yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah. But that's, that's exactly, I mean, I mean, that's exactly the point that it feels like it, we're going to go down this road and, and, you know, maybe we're putting these tropes into, into our projects because, you know, specifically because if we shine a light on what what's possible in fiction, maybe we'll be more wary of, of you know, what happens in real life, uh, you know. And that's what sci-fi does. Um, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. this is definitely sci-fi. Um, I've had this conversation with several friends about superhero films. Are they science fiction? And for the most part, I'd say yes. And especially when you deal with, like, Captain America, the Hulk um iron man right those guys are like straight out of science fiction uh stories yeah it's a real blend of of sci-fi fantasy i think that -hmm. that we have here yeah absolutely absolutely but the other side of that point is sometimes we put it in as a shortcut without thinking about the the consequences and when you look at the dark knight like that they, they made a real key point that says we're doing this once and it's wrong we recognize what we're doing is wrong there are no such revelations in this movie not in this movie but i do feel like they put it in here specifically because they are thinking about okay well we're going to move into this conversation further in the winter soldier and eventually it will be a dividing point when we get to civil war and it will be you know this whole conversation that kind of they continue to have and the idea of these superheroes like what how do they protect you and and that's something that tony really has an issue with like i told you i wanted to put a a, you know suit of armor around the world and this whole perspective that he has and and it's i i do think that they were starting to plant those seeds especially i mean geez look what they're doing at the world security council i mean they're making them look like shady government officials and i do feel like this is uh, this is a direction that they um, were wanting to go, even if it's not a point that we get answered in this film, except with, I would say, when Steve walks down in, in down to the area where uh, Colson is talking, he does have, there's a look on his face like, huh, 
Okay, interesting. <laughs> he does, you're right. Like, he does. Have I, I a think we bit get of we get our reaction coming through Steve. I don't think Bruce is paying attention because I think he's so focused on gamma and spectrometers and everything else. I think that the whole conversation about um, the the methods that they're using to find um, Loki and his group are are lost on him. But I do think that we see it with Steve. I, I don't think that. Um it's completely lost, um, though, I mean, not specifically in terms of the surveillance, but the lack of transparency that S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, exists with. Um, as it's the scene later in the lab where I think it's Steve again comes back and says, oh, wait a second. You know what they're doing with all these weapons? Like, what were you guys planning on doing with this? Right. So there, there is that kind of lack of accountability that the Avengers then reflect back on Fury. Um which I think you could put this into that same bucket, but like you said, I, it's not addressed. And since we're really only focusing on this minute, right? It's not addressed at this time. Right, right. Yeah, the most we get as a recognition of it is Steve's reaction. <laughs> That's yeah, pretty much yeah. it. Because yeah. everyone else is totally fine, you know. And and this is an answer to our question from our last minute: Where did Natasha go? Well, this is where she went. Uh, she actually came and stood next to this uh, workstation so that she could kind of scroll through and check up on Clint. And clearly show her concern that this process of the face trace is not going to move fast enough. And uh, that's where they get this plan to start using a spectrometer. So, yeah. But we're setting things in motion. These elements of the plot have to happen so that the good guys can figure out where the bad guys are and eventually get to them. And the team has to get built. So all of this stuff, that's what's happening right now. Well, And you think about how quickly it happens, right? I mean, that's only a portion of this entire minute. You know, we've gotten quite a bit of movement in 45 seconds. I mean, that's that's pretty good economy of of direction, writing, blocking, all that kind of stuff that would have to go into being able to tell this in that amount of time. Well, and they're they're throwing words around which make it sound very like they know what they're talking about. This is the that important thing where as long as they sound like they know what they're talking about, then we're totally fine. But like Bruce talks about spectrometers and like, you know, do you have access to spectrometers um, uh, or how many spectrometers do you have access to? And Fury's like, how many are there? Which is kind of is that Fury asking a question seriously about it because he doesn't know what a spectrometer is or is he is it a rhetorical question basically saying it doesn't matter however many there are we can access them all which again going to the point that we just had speaks to perhaps the overreach that shield has yeah but again the point is that the spectrometers they just throw the word in there and it sounds oh okay cool they're going to use a spectrometer to blah 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 with the gamma rays and it doesn't matter what it actually does and when you look up what a spectrometer does i'm like i don't think that this actually is what how they use the spectrometer. <laughs> I just think this means what you think it means. Yeah. I was reading about spectrometers on Wikipedia, and I'm like, this doesn't sound like anything that they would use this for, but whatever. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> they are basically able to, you know, find the whatever gamma rays are moving around in the atmosphere. You know, they would be able to see that they're in there, I guess, and is the is the intent of what they're trying to explain. But. And he would know that the Tesseract has gamma radiation at that point obviously so right right so by you know you know he's talking Luckily, about he's the foremost yeah. expert on gamma radiation so oh, that's right. for sure yeah convenient right. exactly 
<laughs> so convenient. Um, yeah. So with his tracking algorithm, you know, he would be able to figure out pinpoint kind of specifically where it is, I guess, is the idea. And uh, and that's kind of the end of Banner, because then he looks for his lab and Fury sends him off with Agent Romanoff to take him to his laboratory. And uh, that's kind of the end of the minute, except we do have a, kind of an interesting extended scene here. There's more conversation. I guess we can just start with the extended conversation between Banner and Natasha, which I just love because as a kid, I had a Commodore 64, and yeah. I loved, 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 loved my Commodore 64. <laughs> you love the Project 66, but did you, don't you think it's a little bit of a weird add-in to this scene? It is. It totally is weird. It's, it doesn't play for me, but I did laugh. Yeah, it's well, it's it's weird for him to like push that as the specific toy that he's asking for, only to just you know, make fun of her about it. Like the fact that she, she wouldn't understand because you're too young. And, and that I don't feel that he's that much older than her. I mean, it's not like he's like 30 years older than her or whatever. Yeah. It's, right. Right. It's, right. Yeah. It's, it is a strange which, thing. Which may be why they cut it. Well, yeah, maybe because it, it does play strangely. Uh, the rest of the scene though, and this, you know, Jay, I don't know if you've watched all the other extended and deleted scenes from the film, but the film started originally with, an interrogation by the World Security Council of Maria Hill talking about this whole incident. It took place two days after the attack on New York. And they are asking her about what happened. And there is clear antagonism that she has with Nick Fury about the decisions he made, about the team he built and all this. And we cut in on these conversations with her in the World Security Council and scenes like this over the course of the film to build this much more antagonistic relationship that the two have over the course of the film. But then her character arc over the course of the film is that by the time we get to the end of the story, she's kind of come around to see um, Nick's point of view. And at the end, she tells the World Security Council, maybe what he did was right or something like that. Yeah. So this is that point where there is that antagonism here and we're getting this moment between them. Yeah, I definitely feel that uh, additional tension, um, which is, you know, not something that, survives in in sort of the stories that we have with Maria or with Fury um, at this point. So um, it's an interesting artifact and archaeological piece, you know, to include um, on the on the box sets or whatever, you know, the, with these deleted scenes, it's like, you know, there's obviously, and, and, and I know there's a lot of other stuff that was trimmed from this film and, you know, number of other films from around this time in the MCU, you know, just as they kind of find their tone and their pacing and decide really what stories they do want to tell, you know, all that balance, which, you know, we still are getting uh, movies, you know, we're still finding out about movies or TV shows, um, the MCU that are, you know, dropping plot lines or changing things at the last minute, uh, character motivations and stuff like that. Yeah, which, I mean, that happens pretty extensively through film and TV anyway. So it's, it's you know, it's one of those things. It's the nature of trying to put these stories together and figuring out what's going to make the most sense. Usually you don't film all that, though, is the thing. You know, there's a lot of that happens on the page and you realize, well, maybe we shouldn't shoot this because it's, you know. But because we're able to see all this stuff, I mean, it's, you know, that's time. Those are days that they spent shooting this stuff. It's not like... You know, I mean, I guess if you're, you know, you're already on the set and you're shooting the bridge set, if we shoot a bunch of other stuff here, you know, that's a additional couple hours or something like that. But still, you know, it's um, a lot of people's time 
I mean, but I, but I think in the world of like deleted scenes and extended scenes and stuff, like, you know, they, they talk about editing projects and how really a, a script, a film gets made and edited three times. Once when it's written, once when it's shot, and then once when it's edited. And oftentimes as they're editing, they realize, you know, we don't, there's, there's, we don't need this at all. We, we thought get, we needed the these extra explanations sense. and it turns out. The one time was enough or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right. I just think this one is more interesting to me. Like this, this particular, anytime we have these breadcrumbs of their antagonistic relationship, reek of a different intention than just like, oh, these are extra, uh, extra explanations because these are, these go to character, right? These go to a deeper relationship between these two characters that does exist elsewhere in canon and they chose to extricate it. And what I find so fascinating about it is that in this, this sequence and others we've talked about, like we have that, that bit, that flavor of, a more complicated relationship that Maria Hill has to gets to have in this movie that ultimately she is is excised and I so this is always a bit of a frustration for me because we we get to see what it would be like if Kobe Smulders got to actually you know perform something with a little bit of uh, a little bit more depth. I, I get it if they were cutting it for time. I do yeah. like the idea of having that relationship like a more antagonistic relationship over the course of the film that develops and she's allowed to kind of have a more interesting character with an arc and everything over the course of the film i really would have struggled though if they started the film with her interrogation because it did seem like you know it seems like a weird way to start the film you know I, i'm not saying the way they started it was any better we've had plenty of conversations <laughs> oh, about we've that. had issues yeah but oh, we have issues. <laughs> but i but it would have been strange to come in on this character that no one had ever met before that would have been uh, you know, it might have been a, an odd way to kind of kick things off yeah. for this particular film. And probably them just deciding, well, you know, it is called The Avengers. We do want to focus on The Avengers. And yeah. so excising that extra subplot there and and then just trimming some of the other stuff that uh, that we're going to talk about with some other deleted scenes later in the week. Sure. Exactly. Though, and it's what I find interesting about these scenes that have been excised is what ends up getting left behind. Because I think that it's really interesting when you watch the scene, knowing what their intentions were, there's a shot when Steve walks down kind of that runway toward the, the front of the ship before he kind of circles back. Agent Hill looks at him and she has kind of this look in her eyes of like judgment, like sizing him up, like, Oh, this is the, this is the exact problem that Fury has by bringing these people in. Like when you know that she has issues with it, if the way that it plays right now, it just kind of looks like she's just looking at him. Like it doesn't quite have that level of antagonism, <laughs> but I love that because to a certain extent, it really speaks to that, um, that kind of editing experiment that I can't remember if it's attributed to, uh, Sergei Eisenstein or who, but that whole idea of cutting the same, uh, reactionless shot of a person mm -hmm. with different images, like, you know, a, a or like a crying baby and a, a dancing woman and, a you know, a, uh, somebody cooking or whatever it is, and, and you could read different emotions into his face based on what you were cutting it, uh, cutting it with. And so there is that sense of having more uh, ability to read into her expression just because we have, you know, a little more understanding of things. Yeah, you, you were close. Um, it, it is a Russian. It's uh, Kuleshev. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you. It's an interesting thing to to get to see and i do enjoy watching these scenes um and but i do feel 
you know, justice. What was the thing that um, Kyle and Rob were saying through the whole uh, Incredible Hulk justice for somebody? Pete, do you remember? Uh, oh, God. It was justice for oh, whoever that, that woman was. Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, you're right. Oh, that was That's a callback, Andy. Goodness. I'm going to do some real-time research. I'm going to let you continue the show. I'll get back to you on justice for... Justice who? for Major Spar. Spar! Justice yes. for Major Spar. There yes. it is. Yes. Oh, that's funny. So, the, but, you know, we can start the same thing here. Justice for Agent Hill. Justice for Hill. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I have anything else for this particular minute. Um, it's, you know, it's a great, uh, great minute spending time on the bridge. Uh, we do get at the very end just a few frames of our next location, but we'll talk about that in tomorrow's minute. I got a so. couple things yeah. I w- want to bring up because uh, um, I don't know how much you see of these characters in the previous minute that you guys have discussed, but I do appreciate the costuming choices of putting the characters in their primary comic related colors. You've got uh, Bruce Banner in purple uh, with his purple shirt, um, Black Widow's wearing the black leather jacket with the red tank top or whatever and then steve i think it's just mostly in blue um but he may have a little bit of red and white on him as well in this particular location he's wearing a brown bomber jacket and like a plaid shirt and gray pants so he's he's the least he is the yeah. worst he's the he's the worst at remembering he can't be trusted it's been 70 yeah. years it's been a long time <laughs> he's just excited to be able to wear something that that wasn't 70 years old he's got some new button downs he likes synthetics maybe I some guess. jeans yeah, <laughs> maybe it was a wallet that he had that had the, the colors, and he lost it. That it might be it. Wash. That might be it. <laughs> and we do. Uh, we'll talk about him some more, but we do see Sitwell uh, in here. Uh, this is our introduction, uh, introdu- introductory location to Sitwell in this particular film. So. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap things up for today's minute. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about minute thirty-seven with Jay. Uh, but Jay, uh, tell everybody about where they can track you down and what you're up to. Well, MCU Location Scout uh, is probably the best place. That's where I post uh, information and articles and photos about all the Marvel Cinematic Universe filming locations. Um, you can also hear me on a number of podcasts at the um, RetroZap.com network. Uh, it includes Superhero Suite and uh, Scarlet Velocity, a Flash podcast, which is finishing up our ninth and final season as that show finishes up, surprisingly just before the the big DC movie comes out. And we've also got an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast there that we completed back in, uh, what, 2020 when, when that show wrapped up as well. Awesome. Well, we certainly appreciate you joining us here today to talk about this minute. It will be fun to continue talking about this the rest of the week. So thank you so much for You're joining welcome. us today. And uh, we'll be back. Uh, Pete, thanks as always. And I would like to confirm it was five stars for Spar. <laughs> five stars five for Spar. for Spar. Indeed. Yeah, that, that's all. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. <laughs>